This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. There's no time machine that allows us to witness interactions of cultures ourselves. And so often how I come to do this is I read these kinds of accounts of cultural um, misunderstanding. You know, as a historian, I often come upon these kinds of things. And some of these experience was brought to light to me by an article I read in graduate school by McGaffey called The Dialogue of the Deaf. In that article, he talks about the interaction between a Portuguese sea captain and the people of the Congo. This communication was gross misinterpretation of religious beliefs that would eventually destabilize power in Congo for years, according to McGaffey. In after an initial visit, this is what happened. After an initial voyage where interpreters were secured, you know, one of the Portuguese diplomats returned to the Congo and attempted to convert them to Christianity. And according to the Portuguese story about this encounter, the Congolese people were so impressed by the riches, the spiritual and material gifts that the Portuguese had to offer that those in power were quick to convert and their people also quickly followed suit. However, on the Congolese side, their account was very different. Instead of being impressed by the Christian riches, it turns out that they simply saw the Portuguese as an extension of their own belief system. Because in Christian practice, in the practice of baptism, for instance, taking a new name fits perfectly with the then system in the, in, in the Congo in which taking a new name was a standard feature of an all-important Congo initiation, right? And other personal uh, successes, according to McGaffey. So this conversion was a misunderstanding of religious beliefs and would eventually lead to a power struggle between different Congolese factions. A majority of the Congo people would remain pagan because of this misunderstanding, and the Portuguese would move throughout the country, eventually acquiring other goods and, and, and services and so on. This, this interaction tells us a lot about cultural practices and how they've been often misinterpreted. Another example I'd want to bring out is looking at Zachary Crockett's and Javier Zaracena's article about the zombies' representation of America's deepest fear. If we look at its connections to Haiti. Looking at the history of the zombie in American culture, how it entered into our consciousness long before we had the walking dead, right? <laughs> you know... 
how it became this kind of aesthetic horror that people can immediately identify uh, and tack onto. How did the undead represent this kind of metaphor for deeper fears and all of these kind of stuff? And many writers, Mike Mariani, who wrote for The Atlantic, talks about the relationship that this has to Haiti. And he says that the original brain-eating fiend was not was a slave not to the flesh of others, but to his own, the zombie archetype, as it appeared in Haiti, and mirrored the inhumanity that existed from 1625 to around 1800 was a projection of the slave's relentless misery and subjugation. And so Haitian slaves believed that dying would release them back to Guinea or to Africa in general, uh, to a kind of afterlife where they could be free. And though suicide, as I've just talked about, was common among the slaves, those who took their own lives wouldn't sometimes be allowed back to Guinea. Instead, they would skulk in the plantations in Haiti for eternity as an undead. They would be at once denied their bodies and be trapped. Um, They would be trapped inside these bodies as a kind of soulless zombie. And so we see this emerge in Haiti as a part of that spiritual system where the West African slaves who were brought there had this system. It had to do with this ambiguous state between life and death where you are a zombie. But once Americans got to, to, to Haiti, Haiti got its independence in 1804. How do we go from there to Haiti being demonized by the Western world? and voodoo culture being perceived as this signification of Haiti's backwardness and its savagery. And many people attribute that to the United States occupation of Haiti starting in 1915, and Catholic missionaries based on this discourse about Haiti's backwardness and savagery would be sent in to dismantle it. Americans who had gone over there during the occupation, someone like William Seabrook, um, was made aware of this idea of the zombie. And while researching voodoo in Port-au-Prince, Seabrook was taken to a Haitian American sugar company where he was introduced to four zombies. And he said that those zombies continued to be dumbly at work. They were plotting like brutes, like automatons. The eyes were the worst. They were, in truth, the eyes of dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. So these people who seemed to be in a catatonic state that Seabrook was looking at were most certainly slaves, right? They were being exploited for their labor by these American manufacturers. If you're being made to work for 18 hours per day and living in kinds of poor condition, but if you're not living there and you're ignorant to this, you have this kind of cultural ignorance, you're going to produce this kind of sensationalized account that kind of appropriates the religious system in doing so. And so the first zombie film, White Zombie, that would emerge in 1932, released at the onset of the American horror movie genre, right? One year after Dracula and Frankenstein, according to Mariani, was largely based on Seabrook's account. And it came out at the tail end of the occupation of America's occupation of Haiti. So we see all these ideas, some very big ideas that we have in life, you know, might be based around these kinds of cultural misinterpretation. And we've had scholars to talk about these things. We experience them in our daily lives, but we've had scholars like Edward Said, who wrote 
Orientalism, I believe it was 1978, where he talked about through the acts of writing and cultural politics, how we how we use language and power, how Western journalists, academics, fiction writers and scholars have helped to build up a prevalent image hostile to Eastern cultures, representing them as stagnant, inferior, degenerate, and how these representations permeate Western culture, right? And how the West exploited these representation to justify their imperialist policies towards the Middle East. We know that in a lot of these kinds of cultures that the, the development of a certain culture propels it to find a culture that is, or create a culture that is different and create its alter ego, for instance. And so Europe in attempting to construct its own image, just like whiteness needs blackness, right? Europe needs the other, right? And this is what Edward Said is saying that the Orient was constructed as the ultimate other. The Middle East, the Orient, the West, the Occident creates this kind of oppositional force. And so we can see how that develops in discourse, creates a system of you know, preconceived notion and ideas that creates a lot of power dynamics as to what is right, what is best, and you know who gets demonized and who gets valorized and so on. I am very excited because of all of this kind of stuff that we know about to talk about cultural competence today because if it can, people, it's the biggest struggle I have in my class to get my students to not think about voodoo as witchcraft, you know? And I, when I talk to anybody, it's like, it's, it's the mountain I have to climb. You know, and so uh, this is why I'm so excited today to talk to Dr. Jacqueline Worthman Mosley about cultural competence. Now, Dr. Uh, Worthman Mosley is a member of fa the faculty at the University of Arkansas. Her research centers around violence against women, but her teaching focus is mostly on, God, thank you very much, um, developing cultural competence. So she's trained to administer the intercultural development invent inventory, the IDI test, right? And she's conducted over 1,200 IDI assessments and led trainings on cultural competence, students, faculty, staff, leaders across the Northwest Arkansas community and on campus at the University of Arkansas. So with that said, I'd love to welcome Dr. Jacqueline Worthman Mosley to the Undisciplined Podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Karee. So, you know, as someone who is not American, uh, this is very interesting because people, you know, knowing that I am Jamaican, do indeed ask questions that, you know, because they've seen cool run-ins. <laughs> they've seen cool run-ins, and that's the basis of their whole idea about Jamaica. So this is something that I've been dying to learn more about. But I want to ask you, I know why it matters to me, What? why does cultural competence matter? Ooh, starting off with the hard one. Yeah. Um, I, I would say it boils down to something very simple. It It's about relationships. So that's what I sort of preach in my trainings and with my students that it's all about relationships. You can think about your family and friends, yes, but it's about your peers, your colleagues, your students, your constituents. It doesn't matter what career you have. 
everyone could use more cultural competency. It's just about relating better to people who are both similar and different than you are in terms of identities and communities, especially now that we live in a very global society. I know everybody says that, but it's true. And the more that we start interacting with people who are different from us, the more cultural competency will help. Having done this on such a large scale, do you notice typical areas that desire or demand more cultural competence? So I I definitely see the research focuses on healthcare, which I think, number one, yes, uh, doctors, nurses, but they're they're already doing it. They're they're implementing more education into nursing fields, probably more so than um, medical doctors. But the sort of the areas that I've focused a lot on are future teachers, so pre-service teachers. Think about they're they're the ones they wear the whole world on their shoulders, I feel like. They're asked to do everything in terms of what they do with students in the classroom, but they need to become culturally competent. They're going to interact with a more diverse student body now, especially moving into the future. We know that underrepresented groups are going to make up the majority of schools. Is it 2042? I think it's going to be sooner in the school districts. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, it's, it's, it's there. And then another one I've seen just in my own personal experiences, is those who want to become future lawyers. And I say this because in a recent conversation with some future lawyers, they were very upset when they had to take the Harvard bias test because they found out they had biases, Mm -hmm. like we all do. And they were very surprised and sort of really ruminating about those, those feelings and biases exist. And if lawyers, future lawyers aren't aware of that, then we have issues. So we know there's biases in the criminal system, the law. Just watch Just Mercy or when they see us on Netflix, right? right? That's what I had to tell these future law students to do because they were completely unaware that there are biases in the systems. How do we measure cultural competence? Like, do I get like 100? (laughs) Do I get an automatic A? Because you identify as a black woman? Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, surprisingly, there are no demographic differences in cultural competency. So racial ethnic groups, people of color don't score higher than white people. Age isn't even a factor. Gender, like that's the surprising thing when I tell people that because it's all about individuals' determination to want to learn. So it's really education and up to an individual. And there's just so many different reasons why we might fall in terms of a, in, in, inside of a different category of cultural competence. So it kind of helps to think about the intercultural development inventory. So it's probably the best valid, reliable assessment out there. I've looked at lots of different ones. And, you know, people take a 50-item assessment and it scores them on this spectrum of really a mono-ethnic mindset to a intercultural mindset. So when people take this assessment, they find out whether they're in one of five categories, denial, polarization, minimization, acceptance, or adaptation. So denial is the first one, and it's only 2% of people. And it, it sounds like what it is. They deny that there are people out there that are different from them, right? So imagine a young student at the University of Arkansas coming from a very homogenous rural community with 200 people who look like them, act like them, believe the same things like them, they just may not be aware of difference. There's a completely in denial. The, the thing to know, though, it's really easy to move them out of denial because you just start exposing them to differences. So they come to the University of Arkansas and they might see some diversity in terms of people of color, gender, sexual orientation, religious any of those. So I hear a lot when people say, 
denial is the backbone of racism. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I, I don't agree. I think it's the colorblindness minimization. Right. So denial isn't very many people. Most people know racism exists. Mm -hmm. So denial is just very few people. I think it is young people who are just completely unaware. So then they move into polarization, which is a fascinating group. It's about 16% of people. And it, it's very an us versus them mindset. So they judge people who are different from them, which is a kind of a natural tendency. You're moving out of similarities. Now you're focusing on differences, but you're judging them because you're not sure. You know, people say like, well, I don't like the, the way that those people do those things. That's not my culture. It's not my upbringing, right? So they start to judge them. So people fall into either defense where they're defensive of their own way. They feel like their values are the better one because that's all they know, right? But more people are in reversal. And reversal is when people value others' cultures over their own, which is very confusing, right? So for a lot of our students who, who identify as white, Caucasian, European, European descent, I call that white guilt. Mm -hmm. So we all know that phrase where they are really struggling with their own identity. So people in reversal are usually ashamed of their own identities. They're embarrassed. So for a lot of our students in my classes who are, who are the entire classes about racism, oppression, the history of slavery um, in the United States, there's a lot of um, icky feelings, you know, coming up with them. And so they will be in reversal if they're really struggling. I see a lot of performative allies as well, mm. where they're like, hey, I'm, I'm all about Black Lives Matter, but I'm going to throw it into people's faces if they don't agree with me because they're in polarization. They're that us versus them. So they're very, again, in some ways, um, defensive. So the big thing that I notice with folks in reversal is they don't have a strong identity. So that's step one in developing cultural competence. They need to learn who they are and their role. And I'll come back to that later. So then when you start to get folks to see similarities. So if someone's in polarization, you don't want to throw Black Lives Matter in their face because that's defensive to them. You want to throw similarities. Hey, how are we alike? You know, because I mean, the majority of human beings are alike when you come down to it. We believe in the same things, right? Most of us believe in families, mm -hmm. you know, being happy, right? The main essential ingredients of human beings. We all have this very, a lot of similarities. So you focus on that. You move into minimization. That's unfortunately where people stop growing. So that's 65% of people are in minimization. That is the, I don't it see- It can't be that bad. No, it, it's a safe space space for them because you're focused on equality. You're focused on humanity. You're focused on, well, I don't see color. Um, I, I don't care if you're black, blue, green, brown, red, or yellow. I'm going to treat you how I want to be treated, right. right? That's that idea of I treat everyone the same. Doesn't matter where they come from. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're masking differences. So they're completely ignoring that we don't come to the table equal, that we are not equal. We all have very different identities, right? And the thing to note with minimization is those folks, they have really good hearts. They have really good intent. They- Good white people. Right, good white people. <laughs> they believe in equality. That sounds yeah. good, right? Yeah. That's why they stay there. They're like, wait, I thought I'm supposed to believe in equality. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they're the ones who really ignore systemic oppression. They ignore inequity, right? The fact that we don't come to the table. And they're the ones most likely to perpetrate microaggressions. They're the most likely to say something to offend someone because, well, it wouldn't offend me if I asked, where are you from, Karee? No, where are you, where are you really, really from? from? Right? I hear a little accent. You have an accent too, ma'am. Do I? Yeah, yeah. From Iowa? I can hardly understand you. 
<laughs> so, so minimization, that is the problem with where we are in terms of social justice because it's the colorblind. We just had a black president. We don't have racism in the United States anymore, right? So right. those are, and that's the majority of people. That's the majority of faculty. That's the majority of teachers, the majority of juries, right? They're saying, I don't see color, but they're completely masking and minimizing someone's experiences and that they're different. So acceptance is the next orientation. And that's when you start going back to focus on differences. And this is where people are now able to understand that systemic racism and oppression exist. Mm -hmm. So now you can start talking about those conversations with them because they're able to be like, huh, okay, I, I didn't know that. And, you know, people don't know what they don't know. And, and you meet them where they are and you try to help them understand that. So when people move into acceptance, that's only 15% of people that are accepting. They appreciate cultural differences, both similarities and differences. They sort of really get it. So they can talk the talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, but they're not able to walk the walk. They're not actually doing anything. They're just sort of on the sidelines going, okay, I really believe in this, which is, which is important. And so those folks is it because walking the walk would require them to give up do power? something yes yeah yes and we can talk about that as mm -hmm. the university of arkansas I, there yeah i got some stuff to say <laughs> <Yeah>. about that <laughs> but so acceptance is 15 percent of people they appreciate both differences and similarities but they need more experiences so they have to do something action is you know speaks louder than words and so once folks start doing that that's how they move into adaptation which is only 2% of people in our adaptation. And those are the change makers. Those are the warriors, social justice warriors, actually creating policies for change, addressing systems, wow. giving up their, their power and privilege in some ways to be active, um, you know, really upsetting people at the Thanksgiving dinner table, <laughs> right? They're doing something. Um, but the, the issue that I say, two things. One, those folks are tired. So Gosh, that's the biggest thing for so adaptation, draining. right? They, everyone else is just learning and talking about it. They're actually doing it. So all the load is on 2% of people. And then secondly, it's I always say cultural competency is not an event. It's not like you get there and you're like, boom, done. All right, yeah. sweet. I'm done. I don't have to learn anything else. I It's a journey, especially when it comes to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the different communities. It's always changing, right? Words are changing. Vocabulary is changing. We're learning about new communities that maybe we didn't talk about five years ago, like neurodiversity, right, is a right. community that we're starting to talk about exactly. and consider them. New narratives are yes. entering the fold. Yes. Unheard voices, previously silenced voices. It's like, oh, my gosh. Exactly. So that's that's why it's a journey. You have to continue learning and growing to, con to stay culturally competent. So people who can't see that systemic racism exists, where do they fall on the spectrum? I think you were talking about that. I, how do you combat that? So I would guess that they're in polarization, defense, or low minimization, where the majority of people are, by the way. So the first thing is you got to get them out of polarization first. You don't throw systemic racism or oppression in their face. You think about similarities. You know, what are we all experiencing in some ways? What's a commonality we have? And then when they're in minimization, then they're ready to sort of 
tackle that larger issue, which is really abstract for a lot of people. For my students, we start, you know, we focus like day one is like, what is racism to you? And a lot of them say individual racism, right? Mm -hmm. And that's great. That's a good start. But unfortunately, you know, we we say when that, someone uh, yells the N word, right? When you lynch someone, right? So we we talk about how you could probably fix all the racists in the world and get rid of racism, but racism would still exist because of the the policies, and and so that's a big like their eyes are wide, like what what are you saying? So you start focusing on the systems, and you you focus on the education system. Like a great documentary is called Teach Us All, which is how we're more segregated in our schools than we were at Brown. Yes, at Brown, and then focusing on the criminal, the healthcare, the housing. Right, you got to focus on these different systems to show, and I think data is a big big one that most students are open to when they're in minimization, not maybe polarization. So it depends on when you bring it into the conversation. You have to make sure they're ready for it. For those in minimization, they are ready for it. It might take them, you know, they might even revert back, which we've seen. They might go back to that white guilt or to even defense. But once you continue educating people, they will they will get it, especially when they move into acceptance. They get it now. So... Uh... How, how does that person then become more culturally competent? Like, what do you suggest? You know, we're living in a globalized world, as you said, and businesses are looking more and more for these kinds of characteristics if people are able to exhibit these kinds of traits. So how can a person put themselves at an advantage, whether they're going to be going to grad school or med school or going into the world of work, to have these kinds of competency? There's sort of the IDI framework sets it up really nicely that there's three steps. So these are sort of how I've organized my entire courses and I've actually pre-imposed and found success with students that they can grow in their cultural competence with these three steps. I'm sure there's more, but I've statistically measured these three steps. So number one, you have to learn about who you are. So for a lot of my white students, they have to learn their cultural ethnic identity their role in the world. And it's not just identity, it's learning about then now their biases, their stereotypes that they have, their privileges, all those things that really start to make them feel really icky and uncomfortable and they tell me that. And I always say that step one's probably the hardest. And I, I see this with people of color and students of color as well, that if they don't have a, long, a strong sense of identity, like their black identity, they are not considered culturally competent because they have to work on step one. And I know it sounds really lame, but you sort of have to learn to love who you are before you learn to love who people are who are different from you. So that's step one. And if you can get through that step one, you'll probably move out of polarization because a lot of it just starts with the person as an individual and what they know about themselves. And nobody wants to look in the mirror at first. So step two is easy, learning about people who are different from you. So you could read books, watch documentaries, movies, go to museums, right? Like the Native American Museum in Bentonville that a lot of us don't even realize is there. Travel, traveling is the biggest yeah. factor, right? You mm -hmm. are literally we'll in another- We'll quickly disabuse you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many opportunities to engage and in, in you know, maybe even talking to someone who's different from you, right? I always tease my, my students that, like, you could just literally have a conversation with someone who's maybe has a different uh, disability or who um, a different racial ethnic group, maybe a different religion, right? You're just talking, having conversations. The third one, I think, is the hard, hardest, probably not as hard as step one, but is to have experiences. And so that's continually putting yourself 
getting yourself outside of your comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. So in my courses, I get I force my students to do service learning. Force them; they get the opportunity to do service <laughs> learning. Yes. Um. They 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 don't like it at first, but they realize it's a core factor for developing cultural competence. You can't just read about racism and become anti-racist. You have to be immersed. You have to be immersed. You have to be immersed. Mm -hmm. You you realize study abroad. Exactly. You know. uh, But study abroad isn't very inclusive. That's true. So I argue volunteering and service learning is because you can get out in your communities. All the rich people can't go abroad. It's it's very cost prohibitive. It's true. But those are sort of the three steps to grow in someone's cultural competency. And the number one thing that I've seen is education. Mm-hmm. Is you have to want to you have to want to do it. It is definitely a person's personal choice if they want to become culturally competent. If they don't, fine. Your relationships might suffer. You may not be the best leader. You may not make any money in your business because it's all about your constituents, right? So I try to, it depends on what somebody wants yeah. to do. If, if you want to be a doctor, okay, you may not be the best doctor if you're not culturally competent. So it's all about your relationships. You might miss out on some really good things too. You know what I mean? Because it's like you're culturally ignorant as to like, I talk about in Jamaica, you know, some of the things that we eat, like we, we eat the pumpkin, but we don't do pumpkin seed oil. I never discovered pumpkin seed oil until I studied abroad in Austria. I'm like, like they left the pumpkin in the field and only pumpkin seed oil went on all this in the salad dressing. That's what, that was the thing. And it was so delicious. And I was like, we only use pumpkin to make soup <laughs> in Jamaica. We, we throw the seeds away or replant them to plant more pumpkin. We never think about this. Or in some parts of Africa, you know, we eat something called cocoa, which is like a yam. But they also eat the leaf as a vegetable. And we're like, would you be poisoned? <laughs> it's like, why didn't the ancestors bring this across too? Like, when did we forget this part? Same thing in Jamaica, we eat aki. Over in Ghana... I was stealing Aki's when I was on campus because they don't eat it. I'm like, y'all don't know what you're missing. Different dishes around. It's like you don't know the joys that you're you're missing if you because maybe you have these cultural ideas in your mind. Like you could be missing your favorite meal. It could be in Haiti. It could be in Brazil. It could be in somewhere. But you know, you don't have that kind of an expansive cultural view. You don't know what you don't know. And I've even given credit to students if they'll go out and try new foods they've never had. Sushi, Thai. And it's sad they've never tried that, but at least they're starting to based in my class. But you know, (laughs) it's getting them out there. They might discover they love certain foods. No, absolutely. I'm with that. All right, so I wanted to ask you, how can we tell the difference between cultural incompetence, prejudice, and racism? Are these different things? Can we excuse one and not the other? Are they subsets of each other? How do we, how do we go about that? Like, we are not canceling people who are just culturally incompetent. Well, I get the question a lot um, by students. Like, you know, if they're in polarization or even low minimization, they say, well, does this mean I'm racist? And I said, that's not what the assessment measures. It doesn't measure racism. It measures how you view similarities and differences. I have argued that I think the more culturally competent you become, especially moving into adaptation, the more anti-racist you become. So the same story goes, the the lower in cultural competence, I think it's highly correlated with your 
more racist views. And again, a lot of it stems from defense, not wanting to know things that you might make you uncomfortable, but they're, they're related, but there's no actual studies to show how they are intricately. But it is something I'm working on in my research. Um, you know, I've found in my courses, I'm, I'm developing more awareness. They're learning about who they are. They're learning about differences. But, I'm, but I, what I was struggling with, are they actually doing anything? That's the whole goal. That's the end game. If you're not doing anything, what's the point in some ways to become culturally competent? You have to live it in your life, your daily and also your professional life. So I'm actually including an anti-racist assessment. So I'm baselining and then seeing at the end of the semester is cultural competency, that that development and growth, is it related to you becoming anti-racist? I really hope so, but I think it's a journey and I think it will take a while for anyone. I would be interested to know, you know how all those statistics that usually come out at the end of election that says 56% of white women who are educated voted this way or this percentage of whatnot. So it, I'm trying to think about cultural incompetence and ignorance. Education. It's two different kinds of education, right? If you're educated, it does not necessarily mean that you're culturally competent. Right. It doesn't mean it 100%, but in comparison to those, you're higher, maybe. Mm-hmm. But usually in minimization, right in the middle, right? Most people are right in the middle. And back in 2016, I, didn't, I wasn't trained in the IDI. And so that election broke me. But in 2020, I was more trained in the IDI, and it was, I was able to sort of understand those numbers a lot better. I have no statistical <laughs> empirical support for this, but I think of where we are in our politics is that our leaders, either in Arkansas or the federal government, are in polarization. They are polarizing. Everyone agrees. It's one side or the other. But I think most Americans are in minimization, and they just don't want to think about other people's problems, right? They want to just focus on themselves and go about their business, and they vote for their own self-interest. They're going along to get along, and that's what minimization, it's a sort of a safe space. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. So I, I think that helps me understand why so many people do vote a certain way. Yeah, that's, that's been something I think that's been at the center of a lot of discourse and debate, right? Because I think people tend to think, oh, it's the poor white people who are racist. People always throw around the Lyndon B. Johnson's quote that if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, you he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, he'll give give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. But I'm sure you could ask probably labor historians who like Michael Pierce who would probably argue a different way, right? People like maybe Carl Anderson who talks about white rage, who sees racism being made in the policy, in the government house, in the halls of Congress, right? Who are producing this violence for people. So it's like... People are thinking like, oh, it's a person who don't have health care over here that poor white people and and then it's the people who are thinking that it it's the 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 people who are educated. <laughs> Somebody was asking if Harvard and Yale who have produced some of these senators and whatnot in a shame of themselves. Because they're the one writing a lot of these legislations that creates a lot of this divisiveness or creates harm for other cultural groups. That is a fascinating thing to think about, I think, where that is concerned.
can legislation in your organization change attitudes, people's attitudes and behavior? So it was funny in a, in a training, someone said, are you, are you asking me to change who I am? Mm-hmm. Which that comes down to that question. Right. And, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you develop skills to interact with people okay. who are similar and different. So to me, I don't think of it as a political issue or as a moral issue. You know, most businesses don't is a top 10 skill that businesses and huge companies are looking for. So to me, it's a skill. And I think when you approach it that way, it lessens the uncomfortability among people. And it's a little bit more, people are more accepting of of it. I think because I was talking about identity and becoming more accepting and, and maybe the, the words that we were, you know, trying to focus on lessen the color blindness. I think this person was actually um, in polarization. They sounded defensive, right? Why are you trying to change who I am? Again, that's their lens of how they view similarities and differences. And what I was trying to say is, you know, trying to help them grow and seeing similarities and differences in a different way. It's not changing who you are as a core person. It's just maybe seeing differences not as so scary, right? I think that's for a lot of people, it's kind of, I always say it's like human evolution. When you look at the history of people, when you interacted with people who are different from you, you ran or there was bloodshed, war. So a natural tendency for human beings is not to be accepting of differences. I used to study mate selection and even couples, they select people who are just like them, might look like them, have the same personalities. It's a comforting thing, but you can also grow more as an individual when you learn to hear from someone who has a very different experience, different thoughts, opinions about anything. You become, I think, more culturally competent, but uh, you become a better person because you know more things outside of your lens. From looking at one study, I looked at all the different factors, your political orientation, whether you identified as Republican, Democrat, moderate. I looked at gender, race, age. The only thing that was significantly related to higher cultural competency was education. So education is so important. And I think it it sort of shows in some ways how some people are more okay with our youth having AR-15s than they are having critical race theory theory books. Thank you so much, Dr. Worsman Mosley. It was great talking to you. Sincerely appreciate your time that you've spent with us today. It was always a joy, Curry. Anything for you. <laughs> Thank you. Undisciplined is hosted by me, Curry Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.